Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 28 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. To keep up to date with news on the podcast, you can follow us on our social media accounts. We're on Facebook and Instagram under They Walk Among Us podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. He got into the stolen car, started the engine and left his mother's home. The vehicle wasn't the only thing he had stolen. Concealed under a blanket in the boot of the car, was a pump-action shotgun and some ammunition taken from his stepfather. Women in the southeast were not safe. The severity of his crimes escalated fast. At his mother's and stepfather's house in Kidwelly, southwest Wales, he had just watched the 18. Now ready to leave, he was heading east to his home in Penge, southeast London. The vehicle he had chosen was a distinctive car. It was a sporty three-door Audi coupe in the unusual choice of cream. He came off the motorway and stopped at a garage, pulling up on a dark roadside so the forecourt lights wouldn't shine into the car and expose what he was doing. He couldn't wait until he was in the privacy of his own home. He walked around to the back of the vehicle, removed the shotgun and a hacksaw from the boot, returned to the driver's seat and began to saw through the barrel, removing inches from its length. The shotgun was cumbersome and long, 
so it wouldn't have been much use in the small space of a sports car. Now the gun was much easier to maneuver, a close second to a handgun. After a day spent with her boyfriend, it was time to go home. The nights were drawing in early, and her trip was to be taken in the dark. It was November 2nd, 1985. Leaving Bath in her yellow Citroen just after 8pm and sticking mostly to the motorways on her route, she would arrive home in Hertfordshire before 11, providing the roads were clear. In the relative safety of her car, and such a direct journey one she had made before, there was no reason to think she would not make it back to her three children. As her husband had died, she was solely responsible for them. Roughly 20 miles into her journey, she hit a slip road, allowing her to merge eastbound onto the M4 motorway on Junction 18 going towards London. She wasn't the only person travelling this way. Full beam headlights illuminated her car from behind. She could see an Aldi in her rearview mirror. From the shadows, the lone driver appeared to be male. He was tailgating her Citroen, edging close enough to need to brake, speeding up then again having to come to an abrupt halt. Before she could decide what to do, the Audi took off, driving past the side of her vehicle as she remained driving on the inside lane. She thought he had driven off, but with no other cars up ahead, he pulled into her lane and the brake light snapped on. He was slowing down. Then he stopped. She drew near to the stationary vehicle, pulling out into the next lane to overtake and continued driving. A couple of minutes later, the cream car was again in her line of sight, getting dangerously close to her bumper. All of a sudden, he pulled out, getting into the lane beside her, and as he did so, she felt the car being shunted forward. The Audi then overtook her Citroen, getting into the same lane before the red brake lights of the vehicle in front appeared once again, forcing her to slow down. The driver pulled on to the hard shoulder. In that split second, she decided to stop too. Maybe they wanted to share their insurance details after hitting her car. She got out and walked towards the Audi, but panic hit her. She could now see the young man in the driver's seat. His boyish face was at odds with his large muscular physique. She had second thoughts, turned 180 degrees on the spot and ran back to her Citroen. Before she could get back to her car to drive away, the man had jumped from his vehicle and wasn't far behind. He wasn't built for speed. His legs were so muscular he had developed a peculiar gait. Regardless... He had made it to the vehicle before she could put the key in the ignition and drive away. He swung open the passenger door shouting at the woman to get out. He had a knife and was trying to pull her out of the car. She managed to squirm away, attempting to escape, but only made it a few steps along the hard shoulder before she felt a hand pull her backwards. Forced in a headlock while being dragged towards the Audi, she fought the stranger with every ounce of energy she had, punching, kicking and shouting, but it was no use. He punched her repeatedly in the face. He opened the passenger side door and threw her in the footwell before she heard the sound of a loud click. 
doors were locked. He violently handcuffed her hands behind her back and brought out the sawn-off shotgun threatening to kill her if she continued to fight. In the frantic struggle, she had been cut by the knife. She had no other option but to stay silent. Her captor didn't realise even though she couldn't see outside, the brave woman was retaining as much information as she possibly could. The direction of travel and speed for what she thought was about two hours meant they had remained on the motorway. She guessed they were likely in an area of London when the car finally stopped. They had pulled up in a secluded alley at Woodside Green in Croydon. It was late evening by now. He used the shotgun again to force her to comply. He popped open the boot and made her get inside the claustrophobic space before it was locked. As the sound of his footsteps faded into the distance, she was on her own for 20 minutes. She shouted and kicked the boot trying to catch someone's attention. It made little difference. No one could hear her. She then heard a vehicle pull up nearby. The kidnapper had left her in the boot to steal a car, a blue Austin Montego. He pulled her out of the Audi and the woman was brutally raped repeatedly. Despite the huge amount of trauma, she retained some details. She took note in her mind that her attacker drank a pint of milk and disposed of the container in the alley. He openly debated with himself whether or not he was going to kill her, rationalising that he was going to get life anyway. She used her training in social work to try and talk him down. He rifled through her handbag, taking her money and reading her child support booklet which had her name and address on the front. The morning light had finally arrived. She should have been home safely hours ago. The man let her get dressed. Both of them were now in the Austin Montego. She was in the passenger seat able to look out the window. Straight after pulling out of the alley, she kept her eyes open for a recognisable landmark. She noticed a pub called the Joiner's Arms, a white building with hanging baskets and decorations that included a wooden wagon wheel. Eventually the car stopped, they were at Victoria Coach Station. He gave her some money, only a portion of what she had in her purse, and said, You can use this fair money to get home. He waved the child support booklet in front of her and reminded her not to tell the police. On October 13th, 1985, only a few weeks before the disturbing incident on the M4 motorway, a 25-year-old woman was alone in her car driving along the M1, when for 15 minutes a man in a light-coloured car had terrorised her. Driving dangerously close to her bumper, even resorting to spinning his car to a halt to try and stop her vehicle. Luckily, she avoided a collision with him or any other motorists on the road. She got out and ran to a nearby house screaming for help, and the police were called. Just three days later, the man committed his first known rape. The teenager was waiting for a bus at a stop in Banstead near Croydon. The car slowed down and stopped beside her. 
the driver offered to give her a lift. She accepted and hopped into the passenger seat of the sports car. At some point, she may have noticed that she wasn't being taken to her destination. Instead, she was driven to the grounds of Epsom Racecourse a few miles away. The man threatened her, held a screwdriver to her throat, and raped her. He dropped her off at home afterwards, making sure he knew her address. Fearing the man could return at any time, she didn't report it to police until later. Again just three days after his last crime, on October 19, 1985, a 19-year-old woman left her home in the village of Astid, Surrey. She had run out of cigarettes, so that evening popped out to buy some more. It was 11.30pm, and as all the shops were shut, she headed to a petrol station along the A4, a major road. Careful to not get too close to the traffic in the dark, she walked beside a low wall. She had no way of knowing a man was lurking on the other side as she walked alongside it. The man grabbed her and raped the teenager at knife point. He appeared to be inactive for the next couple of weeks until the awful night he left his parents' house with a gun. Jacqueline Murray, known to family and friends as Jackie, was 22 years old and was living and working in London. Originally from Bradford, she started sex work there in her late teens, but left the area when the Yorkshire ripper Peter Sutcliffe was still at large in the north of England. The high percentage of the women Sutcliffe attacked or killed worked in the red light districts. Jacqueline left her hometown for the bright lights of London and a new start away from the fear that she could fall victim to the Ripper. Since the voice of the man who claims to be the Ripper was broadcast last night, specially set up switchboards in Leeds, Halifax and Sunderland have been flooded with calls. So in their second major bid this week to catch the Ripper, detectives have released samples from one of the four letters he's written. Once again, the crowds had waited for hours, some through the night, to watch Peter Sutcliffe arrive from Brixton in the green prison van. The court heard how, to those who knew him, Sutcliffe was an unremarkable person living in suburban Bradford. In a red-light district, he picked up his first prostitute to try to see Sonia's alleged affair in a different light. But he said, I realised what a coarse and vulgar person the woman was, and my hatred for prostitutes grew. After Sutcliffe was caught, Jacqueline Murray chose to stay in London. She worked from luxury hotels picking up clients from the lobby or the bar. She was often caught and thrown out. She would then move on to the next hotel. Tonight was one of those nights. It was Monday, November 4th, 1985. Having just been ejected from one hotel, Jacqueline, who went by the name Avril to clients, walked along Park Lane with her friend Judy, hoping to find a new hotel where they could pick up business without being noticed by the security staff. As they passed the Grosvenor House Hotel at 9.55pm, a car drove by and made a U-turn a little further up the road before heading back towards them. The medium-sized saloon car came to a halt at the curbside and the driver wound down the window. They briefly discussed business. The man bought the time of both women and they got into the car, 
Jacqueline in the passenger seat, Judy in the back. As the car started, the central locking was activated. Almost immediately, the man was driving erratically. When they were near Hyde Park, he brought out a shotgun, pointing it at Jacqueline. He threw a pair of handcuffs at her and told her to put them on. She refused. The women panicked and wanted to get out of the car. Judy used her feet to frantically kick at one of the rear windows, successfully smashing the glass into thousands of tiny pieces that scattered along the road as the car was still moving. She got up and leant out of the window, waving her arms as she shouted for help. The driver turned in his seat and pulled her back into the car. As he repositioned himself, he pointed the gun at Jacqueline, pressed it to her skin and pulled the trigger. Without stopping, he drove past Marble Arch and not long after came to an abrupt stop near North Carriage Drive. He released the central locking and pushed Jacqueline Murray out of the car. Judy seized the opportunity to scrabble out of the unlocked door and escape. She hid until he had gone. Jacqueline Murray died from her wounds. The man committing these horrific crimes lived near the scene. His name was John Steed. He lived in a small dark apartment in Penge, London. It was a space he shared with his girlfriend, Sharon Beauville. At 21, she was one year his junior. They had been living together in bedsits around Croydon for the last two years. Sharon was treated brutally by Steed. The abuse was mental as well as physical. He insisted she called him God. She feared her partner. In court, it was revealed that Sharon was told in detail about the rapes after he committed them. She said he called and told her about the murder of Jacqueline Murray. She told him she was going back to their flat, but ended up spending the night in the van she drove for a living. In contrast to his aggression, John Steed lived a restrained lifestyle. He didn't drink or smoke, but he did inject anabolic steroids. He was fixated with obtaining what he believed was the perfect body. He devoured protein, sometimes consuming a couple of pounds of meat and six eggs in one meal, and spent hours lifting weights at the gym. Clint Eastwood playing Dirty Harry was a character he idolised. So obsessed with Eastwood, it was reported he once tried to hypnotise himself into thinking he was Dirty Harry. When this didn't work, a friend said he obtained a gun illegally and, as a warp party trick, went up to people he knew, pulling the trigger on the empty gun. Steed followed Zen Buddhism, but was selective with the parts he took on board. He had time to pursue these interests, as he was a self-employed mechanic with little work coming his way. He picked up an interest in cars from his father, who was also a mechanic, that worked near where John Steed had raped the woman he abducted on the M4 motorway. According to Steed, his childhood was turbulent. At five, he witnessed his father rape his mother at their home, and domestic violence was a regular occurrence. Eventually, his parents separated, and he lived with his mother. Money was scarce, and she attempted suicide three times. Steed was a loner who was caught in his early teens stealing cars, 
an offence that he would repeat along with charges for actual bodily harm, possessing offensive weapons and indecent exposure. In total, he appeared in court 16 times. When he was doing a stint in prison at 17, he said his girlfriend visited him and told him she had cheated on him with another man. Steed later told police, I had a bird once that I loved. I was good to her. I'm convinced they don't want to be treated nice. The more horrible you are, the more they like it. This made me feel that what women want is not to be treated with respect and care. They want to be treated like shit. They seem to like it. A detective later said of Steed, he is articulate, intelligent, and good-looking on the face of it. Seemed to have a lot going for him. But he is absolutely evil. Another police officer simply said, he was the best-looking guy I ever saw. The looks that he worked so hard on initially helped Steed attract women, but his personality was often a deterrent. The manager of the gym John Steed attended said, some of the girls felt very uncomfortable with him here. He seemed to feel that all women were a bit inferior. His mother Sheila stated, he could never have any human relationships. Even as a toddler, he couldn't be cuddled. He would never let anyone cuddle him. She said that his father would beat him and her son would show contempt for everyone. She didn't think he was interested in girls, but was preoccupied with his looks and physique. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Center. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. 
And now Scent Air is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit ScentAir.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Scent Air diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scent Air app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code among us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. At Victoria Coach Station, before most people had risen for their day, the horrific nine-hour ordeal was over. She was alive, but in a bad way. Her captor's parting words threatened her not to tell the police. She summoned help, and when she arrived at the hospital... It was discovered her injuries were so horrific they could have been fatal. A newspaper reported she was pregnant, but she miscarried after the attack. She relayed all the information she could to police. She mentioned seeing a pub called the Joiner's Arms just after she was driven away from the site where she was attacked. There were six Joiner's Arms in and around London at the time. After a detailed investigation... Officers finally discovered the correct one with the wooden wagon wheel decoration and hanging baskets. The survivor of the attack accompanied them and started to tremble when the car she was in pulled up outside. From her reaction and description, detectives knew they had the right place. Upon finding the pub, this quickly led them to the crime scene. They scoured the area for a milk container the perpetrator drank from before he disposed of it. The police praised the survivor's memory and courage throughout the ordeal. Inspector Fessy said she had great presence of mind and although terrified she knew she had to talk to stay alive. She also used the time to gather evidence. She is highly intelligent with a phenomenal memory and great courage. He finished by saying, I have nothing but admiration for her. Operation Joiner was set up consisting of a team of 26 members of the Metropolitan Police Force. They felt there were significant similarities in the attacks to link them together. They worked closely with the Wiltshire and Thames Valley Police Forces and the team were early to employ the use of computers in the investigation. Details of the crimes were fed into the Police National Computer, a local and national database used by UK law enforcement. There were a number of similarities provided by the victims when describing the assailant. His age range fell between 20 to 30. His build, muscular, medium to heavy set. His hair, mousy brown, and his clothing the same every time. A fairly generic outfit of a casual leather jacket and jeans. Two of the cases involved constraining with handcuffs, and three weapons were mentioned throughout. A screwdriver, a knife and a sawn-off shotgun. Most of the women described a cream or light-coloured car, but detectives were also looking for a dark MG Maestro. Parallels were drawn between his accent, speech, 
the words he chose and his gait when he walked. It became clear that the crimes were most certainly linked and a confidential hotline was set up. The teenage girl who was abducted from Banstead found the courage to call the number, which was connected to an incident room in Croydon. All of the women that came forward were each given 24-hour police protection at a safe house. John Steed had gone out of his way to let them know he knew where they lived, and it was reported they received threatening phone calls before they were put under the protection of the police. The caller had warned them not to go to the authorities, or he would, quote, get even. It was entirely possible he could turn up at their homes, especially since one of the victims reported that John Steed acted as if it was a consensual hookup when he dropped her off at her house. He suggested that they meet for sex again. The public was warned not to approach if they saw a man matching his description, as he was armed and extremely dangerous. Chief Superintendent Mike Purchase spoke about the murder of Jacqueline Murray and said, It's an absolutely ruthless attack. He pulled the trigger of a sawn-off shotgun at point-blank range. There can never be any justification for having a gun like that. John Steed's name was beginning to get noticed by police. A call came in from an ex-girlfriend of Steed's. She said she was greeted by him waiting outside her house one day and he was driving a light-coloured Audi. He propositioned her for sex and then left. A vital piece of evidence found at the scene, the milk container, had his fingerprints on it. John Steed hadn't gone on the run. He had left his home hoping to lay low until the urgency to catch him had taken a back seat. He would rear his head not too far away in Sydenham, South East London at a car showroom. Looking for a brand new vehicle, he abandoned his usual method of stealing one and changing the license plate. At the showroom, Steed asked to test drive a Renault. The salesman accompanied the customer, but was threatened with a weapon and forcefully pushed from the car. John Steed left in the Renault and the police were called. Officers visited his basement flat on Croydon Road in Penge. Both John Steed and Sharon Bovell had vacated a week before, leaving the flat sparsely furnished. Sharon had returned to her parents' home in Croydon. When police arrived, they were then told she had left two days earlier to get away. Her sister Shirley said, She is obviously upset. She has gone away for a few days to recover. Detectives believed John Steed was still in Croydon, so unmarked police cars trawled the streets and back alleys looking for the stolen car. Their perseverance paid off when they located the Renault on the seventh floor car park of the Fairfield Halls in Croydon. They didn't know if the car had been abandoned there or the suspect was returning. They staked out the car with armed police on standby. About two hours later, a man with a distinctive gait matching Steed's description walked to the car. He got in. The sound of a car door shutting, an engine revving, echoed in the concrete car park. The car pulled out of its parking spot, but wouldn't get much further than the exit as it was blocked in and the vehicle surrounded. Steed was arrested without incident.
John Steed was remanded in custody for three days and on November 13, 1985 at Bow Street Magistrates Court, he was charged with the murder of Jacqueline Murray, rape and theft. At the time, Steed and the women he raped were not named in the press under the Sexual Offences Amendment Act of 1976, with enforced anonymity for rape complainants and defendants. Later, the anonymity for rape defendants was repealed. Jacqueline Murray's parents briefly spoke to the press five days after their daughter's murder. Along with their twin teenage daughters Susan and Anne, they arrived home in Bradford after assisting Scotland Yard. Patrick and Mary Murray, originally from Ireland, wanted to set some matters straight that had been reported in the press, particularly a report from the previous day. The article said the family had lived in Bradford for three years. The Murrays said they had been there for 30. The suggestion was Susan and Anne were not employed. Patrick Murray made it clear that the twins were both in full-time employment. A neighbour had been quoted as saying, We know Jackie worked away, but we didn't really know what she did for a living. The only thing we ever noticed was odd men calling at the house. That was when her parents were visiting people in Australia for six weeks earlier this year. The Murrays said the strange men were actually friends and family members checking in on the house as they were abroad for so long. A colleague of Patrick Murray's at the taxi company where he worked also spoke to a reporter the day after Jacqueline Murray was identified. He said, Patrick got a telephone call from his wife last night asking him to go home urgently. He never mentioned his family at work. He is such a nice bloke. This will devastate him. A journalist for the Croydon Post and Associated Papers found himself in hot water when he left Metropolitan Police Files relating to the John Steed case in the bar of a hotel. He appeared in court during April 1987. He was accused of knowingly breaching the Official Secrets Act. His defence counsel said there was no evidence that his client had been given the documents in contravention of the Act and the journalist was also not aware the files were covered by it. The judge said, One of the curiosities by the Official Secrets Act requires the prosecution to prove that information was communicated to the defendant in contravention of the Act to his knowledge. Therefore, the prosecution must prove that the defendant had knowledge of the law. This they have not done, so the prosecution must come to an end. However, the judge refused to reimburse the journalist's employers, stating they had spent their money about their business. At a hearing at the Old Bailey on November 5th, 1986, John Steed pleaded not guilty to the murder of Jacqueline Murray. Instead, he put forward a guilty plea of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He claimed the steroids that he abused were partly responsible for him carrying out the axe. His defence counsel said, Steroids were a trigger for his behaviour. They turned him into a violent man with an insatiable sexual appetite. The defence spoke of Steed's traumatic childhood and how witnessing the rape of his mother shaped his actions. 
Defence counsel Robert Flack presented one of the most intelligent and chilling profiles of a psychopath that has ever been heard within the walls of an Old Bailey courtroom. John Allen Steed emerged as a psychopathic adult from a quagmire of emotional deprivation and inadequacy. Mr Flack said one asks where it all starts, the story that ends in death in Park Lane. What causes a man to become a psychopath? Mr Flack said he was a man as sick in mind as a victim of cancer is sick in body. He emerged believing that the more horrible he was, the more women liked it. He felt power, elation, he felt godlike. He was now the hypermanic psychopath, and the violence inside him was triggered when he began to take steroids and inject himself with drugs. He wanted to be a real-life James Bond, cool, charming, a machine capable of anything. John Steed was also charged with three counts of rape and one charge of abducting a woman with intent to have sexual intercourse with her. For all four of the charges, he admitted his guilt. In addition, charges for the theft of numerous cars were added, along with the theft of the shotgun from his stepfather. A collection of weapons found in John Steed's possession and amongst his belongings were shown to the court. One shotgun, the murder weapon, one pistol a pair of handcuffs, three knives that were made for hunting, and two flathead screwdrivers. Details of the crime were read aloud as John Steed sat emotionless and pale throughout the proceedings. His girlfriend Sharon Beauville wept. She later took to the stand and was questioned about a home life with John Steed and intimate details of their relationship. She told the court that he confessed to her what he had done. The woman that Steed abducted on the M4 motorway was referred to as Mrs. C and her anonymity continued to be protected. A doctor that treated her in hospital testified. This woman has been subjected to an almost fatal violent assault. In my 30 years experience I have rarely seen such an attack where the victim has survived. Prosecuting, Alan Green told the court that Steed had been assessed by three psychiatrists. All three concurred he had a psychopathic disorder. Two were working on behalf of the defence and one for the Crown. Due to his condition, they came to the conclusion that it substantially impaired his mental responsibility for the killing. Alan Green said, They also agreed there should be no medical disposal. There is not a question of a hospital order but imprisonment instead. He went on to explain how thoroughly Steed's plea was considered. He said it was discussed at the highest level with staff of the Director of Public Prosecutions and the police. The judge, Sir James Miskin, accepted Steed's lesser plea of manslaughter. This particular defendant wrecked her havoc over a seven-week period last year and, as a judge said, he reduced women to stark terror Indeed, he was a very highly dangerous individual. The court heard the catalogue of violence against three women, all raped. One only four feet eleven inches tall. All underwent the humiliation of Steed presenting a black soliloquy on whether he should kill them or not. Steed was holding a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. The third victim was a 39-year-old widow.
John Steed was back in court to be sentenced five days later. The judge addressed Steed and said, You represent such a danger to the public, especially to women, that I have no hesitation in giving you life sentences for each rape and for the manslaughter. On top of the four life sentences, Steed was given 20 years for the other offences. Outside the court, Detective Inspector Fessy spoke of the brave actions of the M4 survivor and said, although she was absolutely terrified, she kept him in conversation long enough to collect evidence which was useful and ended with the successful conclusion of the case. Police Commander Algernon Hemingway also gave a statement. I cannot compliment her actions um, too highly. Uh, indeed, she's a professional woman. She acted with restraint, with coolness of presence, under very adverse conditions. And indeed, it was only by her alertness that obviously prevented her falling victim and could have been death. The police commander also explained why Sharon Beauville was not charged for having knowledge of John Steed's crimes. Her evidence was so important, she was used as a prosecution witness. But you must bear in mind, um, she was no different from other women because she herself uh, was facing uh, stark terror because she knew that she could spill the beans if she was able, but it was too dangerous. So where are we now? John Steed was locked up, and as the survivors of his brutality could not be named, the focus turned to Sharon Beauville. She chose to stand by Steed, saying she wanted to marry him. She sold an exclusive interview about her relationship, which included details of their sex life, to the now-defunct newspaper, The News of the World. Other papers voiced their outrage after the article was published. One said, His girlfriend Sharon Beauville could have stopped him because he took some pleasure in describing to her what he was doing. She could have tipped off the police and so spared other women from being subjected to appalling and degrading ordeals. Referring to Beauville in the tabloids, it went on to say, As she poses like a glamour girl, the blonde Sharon tells how she willingly submitted to Steed's perverted practices. Far from facing any prosecution, she's now almost certainly cashing in on his infamy and her complicity. Other newspapers took a more sympathetic viewpoint towards Sharon Beauville, in alignment with the police statements. John Steed was told in 1997 his life sentence would mean life he would have to spend the rest of his days behind bars. He tried to commit suicide by way of an overdose. His attempt failed. On Sunday, July 13, 1997, he tried again. In his cell at Full Sutton Prison, John Steed tore up the sheets from his bed, looped them around his neck and hung himself. Over a year later, in November 1998, an inquest was held at Hull's Coroner Court. John Steed's mother was in attendance 
and cried throughout the proceedings. The inquest heard that Steed had used the bars on his cell window as an anchor. Joseph Saunders, a medical officer at the prison, recalled the inmate telling him that it was his duty as a Buddhist to escape hell. A verdict was reached. John Steed had taken his own life. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.